The Best of Our Knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. Coming up, the Vermont State Colleges System, which is transforming into the Vermont State University, has selected a new chancellor. We'll learn about an ancient Iranian tradition celebrated during the winter solstice, and the race is on to establish a National Semiconductor Technology Center. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. The Vermont State Colleges system is undergoing a transformation. The system is beginning the second phase of a five-year plan creating the Vermont State University. Accredited in July, it includes Castleton University, Northern Vermont University, Vermont Technical College, and the Community College of Vermont. But the transition has meant faculty buyouts, program adjustments, consolidation or reductions, and staff reductions. The Vermont State College's System Board of Trustees in November selected Dr. Elizabeth Mauck to serve as chancellor. Mauck, who has been president of Bethany College in Kansas, tells the best of our knowledge is Pat Bradley she has been following the system's plans and challenges. You know, I have had my eye on Vermont and the Vermont State College's system for a while. I have watched this transformation, and um, so I, I have been just so interested in what's going on. I, I think it's fantastic right now that there has been so much support from the state for this system. I think it's uh, really wonderful that we have an opportunity now in this second phase of the transformation to really look at uh, all of the potential ways students can get degrees, starting from certificates up to master's degrees, and really just looking at how it is we can strategically place ourselves so that we can be the way that we get to a better Vermont. My understanding is your background includes creating a strategic plan and a campus master plan at Bethany College in Kansas. How will that background help you as you do move into phase two of the transformation of the Vermont State Colleges? I think that creating strategic plans and campus master plans, which really focuses on the buildings, uh, is so important because what it provides for us is a framework for change. It allows us to talk first as an entire system about what is important to us, uh, what have we historically been, and then it gives us a way to move uh, smaller groups of constituents, both internal and external, into really saying, okay, what will that look like in this next phase? How can we uh, really best serve all of the citizens of Vermont and in our neighboring um, communities? And so um, what I have really enjoyed doing in strategic planning processes How can we bring everyone together to get some of the best ideas so that as we're moving forward, we have programs, we have support systems, uh, we can look at financial aid systems that are important to our students moving forward, but that are grounded in why we were put here in the first place. And I think that my experience with that, especially in a rural setting, will be very important as we move into this next phase of transformation. Dr. Malk, have you reviewed the current 
plan for phase two as we move into phase two at the Vermont State Colleges? And would you plan any adjustment to it at this point? Certainly. I, I certainly have, um, you know, given it a, a cursory glance. I haven't had time yet to get into some of the details, but um, the way I am looking at this is I see this next phase uh, where we really need to be focused on three areas. So the first area is clearly the budget and some of the budget transformations we have to make that have been mandated by the legislature, and I'm excited to do those. And I know a lot of those plans are already in place, um, but, you know, obviously as you look through things, you have to um, adjust as you go. Um, the second second piece to this, my second goal, would really be looking at the kinds of programs we already have and to really look at how are we going to best tell our story. How is it that the Vermont State College system really is that focus and really is that gem that every citizen of Vermont and our surrounding communities um, should go to and really look at as an op option. And then the third piece to me is a um, – you know, really looking forward, what are, as I mentioned, what are some of the degrees and opportunities of the future? How can we ensure that we continue to serve the citizens of Vermont and our surrounding communities so that they have the best opportunities for um, meaningful jobs and meaningful careers and meaningful lives um, as they move through our system? So those are the three places that I'll be focused on, uh, certainly here in the, in, the, in the, I guess, first phases of the second phase of the transformation. <laughs> when you take a look at all of the things that have been going on, I mean, the Vermont State Colleges, you know, and the creation of the Vermont State University system, how do you approach addressing the financial challenges that the college system is facing at this point um, that that's a pretty heady thing to be stepping into. Sure. Um, and, you know, certainly there is already the basis of a plan um, that has already started with some of its implementation phases. And so what I will be continuing to watch is uh, some of the markers, some of the other markers that have been set down, um, will those actually realize some of the savings that we are um, looking and thinking that they will? Um, we'll be looking to see, you know, do some of these pieces make sense? Again, as you know, as you're doing any kind of transformation, you've always got to be looking at what are the different pieces and how are they going to fit together? So I will be looking for that. Um, it is a, a big heavy lift. However, I think some of that great work that occurred in the first phase of the transformation uh, really has set us up well to continue to look at these things in a very uh, mindful way, which I think is the most important part. Yes, this is a, is a big thing we have to do, but the fact that we have a plan through it means that we can go through and actually realize some of these savings that we know we need to realize, but at the same time, educating all students in a way that really gives them the chances to have those Dr. Malk, you mentioned that you've been watching the transformation to the Vermont University system, the Vermont State Colleges system, for a while now. So you probably are familiar with a situation where the initial chancellor had proposed creating a virtual library and eliminating the physical library, and then also cutting back on sports programs, which was a very controversial plan. Would you plan 
cutbacks or personnel changes or other types of major changes to deal with the budget challenges, or is it too early right now? I mean, you don't start until January 1st. Is it too early to, you know, say, yes, I would cut back here or I would think about personnel changes? Sure, probably a little too early. I I do want to get in and look at everything. You know, there are a number of different pieces that we are all looking at uh, in the transformation that certainly came out as recommendations from that first transformation phase. And and I will certainly be looking at all of that uh, and, and seeing, again, how we can make, you know, cuts that make sense for the students of today um, and that won't harm our students in the process. So at this point, I I will just continue to look and see what is occurring, how we're doing that, and then how do those changes as we're making them really, how are they impacted from other changes? And so we'll, we'll have to continue to look at that. You also mentioned that you'd be looking at degrees and opportunities for the future for students. What types of things are those? You know, what I have always really enjoyed doing is working with the constituents to ascertain what are those next degrees. So the most exciting thing to me about this system right now is that a student can enter and start by working on a certificate program and then come in and out of the system and eventually get a master's degree, if that makes sense. And so using that basic structure, I would be looking to see what are some of the degrees that our um, business constituents are looking at, um, our elected officials may be looking at some things, uh, really getting back to the K-12 system to see what are some of the pieces that uh, those students need to understand as they're getting into the system. So I would just be really so excited to work with all of the various constituents, and again, both on and off campus. I, I have found in my career that faculty and staff have fantastic ideas. And so when we bring all of those constituents together to really hear what is it folks need, how can we provide that, I think we then get the best solutions. And so I'm really excited here, especially as I start to ramp up to really start working with all of those constituents to be able to to um, get get the kinds of degrees that I think our students need. And speaking of students, a lot of smaller colleges and universities, especially those in rural settings, which obviously the Vermont State Colleges are in rural settings, have been seeing diminishing enrollments. What's your approach to attracting more students to counter the smaller enrollments that not just the Vermont State Colleges, but as I mentioned, many colleges are experiencing? Sure. And I have worked in rural higher ed my entire career, so I certainly have a lot of experience with this. And certainly right now in Vermont, we even know that there are 45% of high school students who don't go on to get um, any kind of a training or certificates or degrees after they graduate. So looking at how we can start to attract those students is interesting to me. Um, but also there are other citizens of Vermont and in our surrounding communities who I know uh, might be interested in furthering their careers and maybe jumping into something different. And so looking at that, and that has been something that I have done, again, with other constituencies um, throughout my entire career to look at what are some of the um, 
what, where are some of the areas that we haven't tapped yet? Where are some of the ways that we can be a resource to folks who would like to continue on in higher ed or to start a higher ed program? Dr. Malk, the Vermont State College's trustees seemed to be quite impressed with your fundraising accomplishments at Bethany College. Do you feel that you can replicate that for Vermont State University? And how much of a focus will that be as you step into the chancellorship? I I certainly do. And um, even at my first institution, um, I was able to raise funds. Uh, To me, Fundamentally, fundraising comes down to uh, finding groups of folks who share a passion with you and want to try to solve a problem. Uh, In my entire career, I have found that that is the best way to really start to raise some of those external funds. And what that allows you to do is to then show students or folks who want to come back for a degree look at the things that we're doing here. This is really important. So I will certainly be focusing again on fundraising. I I do think that there are opportunities out there for the Vermont State College's system uh, to look for external funding. Um, In my career, um, that has included alumni and friends. It also includes grants. And then it also can include foundations who are interested in, again, touching what the future might be. And so I will be looking for those opportunities in collaboration with what they're already doing at the Vermont State Colleges system. Have you had a chance to tour any of the colleges in the system yet? Not since I have gotten the position, not yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that being one of the very first things that I do is to, to go back. I've, been to, I've actually been to several of the, the colleges, but um, not recently, so I'm very much looking forward to going and just seeing what's going on at the institutions. Would like to get there when there's students on campus, so that, that would be exciting to me so I can see how the students are interacting with the physical space. Well, you've been in Kansas. You should be used to somewhat of the similar cold that January will bring in Vermont. (laughs) It's funny. Actually, Kansas is not as cold. (laughs) Nebraska would be more cold. But actually, (laughs) I'm looking forward to getting back to the the cold. I was originally from Poughkeepsie, New York, so I enjoy cold winters. I I, I certainly look forward to having opportunities to, you know, engage with all of the natural resources that Vermont can offer. Malk will begin her tenure as chancellor on January 1st. She replaces Sophie Zadatny, who in September announced she was stepping down. Reporting for the best of our knowledge, I'm Pat Bradley. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. An ancient Iranian tradition, Yalda night has been observed on the winter solstice since 502 BCE. The holiday on the darkest night of the year is celebrated as a time to gather, share, and revel in the glow of togetherness and eat wonderful food. The Best of Our Knowledge's Jody Cowan spoke with Dr. Mahmoud Karimi Hakak, professor of theater at Siena College, about the history of the celestial celebration and its traditions. 
In uh, the Persian culture, like many uh, ancient cultures, every season uh, starts with an equinox and that has, has a celebration for that. Uh, Yalda is the time when we believe that uh, the uh, sun is now coming back to fight against darkness. Sun is going to uh, begin its victory over darkness. In the ancient time, People used to put candles uh, on, on their windows uh, the night before Yadda. Yadda is um, uh, December 21st. People used to do, put candles uh, with the idea that they are going to welcome sun. And each candle is a soldier for the light to fight darkness. Of course, as we all know, that later on uh, was adapted by the, uh, by the Jewish people and the Hanukkah uh, celebration where we have candles in the windows. And later on, it was adapted uh, by Christians as, the, as Christmas, um, uh, where we celebrate by uh, putting lights all over. But all of these have one meaning, and that is, we all agree that light is better than darkness. We all want to celebrate light. Um, every year, uh, we gather for Yadda together as Iranians and, and Persian-speaking communities, uh, which includes Af Afghans, uh, some Pakistanis, some Indians, uh, the Uzbekis, the um, Tajiks, and a whole bunch of countries around there. Uh, we g gather together and we uh, we talk to each other. We we share stories with one another. So it's a it's a night long celebration. I'm fascinated by 502 BC, oh, you know, yes. as far as the antiquity here and just the, the relationship of people of that time to the sun. Well, you know, people of that time only knew two uh, elements, two main gods, the sun and uh, the moon. Moon would uh, rule the, the world during the night and the sun would uh, rule the world during the day. And of course they wanted the sun because that was the time they could go out and, and do their farming, do their hunting, do everything that they wanted to do. They believed that uh, every day the, the sun kills the moon and replaces her for the day and then at night moon comes back and kills the sun and replaces him for the day. But as the days become longer, the strength of sun sun becomes uh, more st uh, stronger. Therefore, the birth, the rebirth of sun, in fact, in Christianity also, uh, the, the reason, one of the reasons that uh, Jesus' birthday is placed in uh, Christmas, because uh, we know historically that's not where, uh, when Jesus was born, but uh, the reason that it was uh, placed at this time is because it's sun, it's the rebirth of sun. Jesus is the sun of our life. Since the ancient time, we have always continually celebrated this one day. What are some of the customs and traditions of the Yalda night celebration? We have a lot of uh, sweets. We drink tea, we drink wine, we um, uh, read poetry, uh, we uh, talk to each other. There is also, uh, there are many, many story uh, tellings uh, going on. One of the interesting things is that um, the young girls in, in the ancient culture, the young girls used to stand behind the, uh, behind the door listening to the conversation that goes on. And based on that conversation, they would decide whether they're going to get married in the year to come or not, you know. So there's a lot of these little, uh, and it's been added over, over the years, uh, many, many different things have been added to it, but food is always, has always been there. Uh, poetry for us has always been there, and wine has always been there. 
Uh, you mentioned the the poet Hafez mm-hmm. and Rumi. Right. Tell me more about the the writing and the significance of that. Well, uh, both Rumi and Hafez are, are uh, philosophers. You know, and they are Sufi philosophers. They are uh, Rumi is a couple of centuries before Hafez, um, but and, and Rumi, as you know, in 1992, Rumi was the best-selling poet in America, uh, thanks to uh, Coleman Barks and uh, Robert Bly and their translations. These two poets traditionally have been very important in Persian culture because they speak the people's language, and their poetry is such that it is open to all kinds of interpretation. You can interpret it whatever way you want. You know, if you read a line from Hafez or read a line from uh, Rumi, uh, you can decide what this line means to you. Therefore, it becomes the best tools to use for communication during a night that people are going to think about their own future. I love that. I think that's brilliant. Are there any passages that come to you that highlight the, the evening well? Well, uh, there's a poem at my door, <laughs> which is by Rumi, actually. I'd like you to read it for me. What is to be done, O lovers? For I do not recognize myself. I am neither Christian nor Jew nor Muslim. I am not of the East nor of the West nor of the land nor of the sea. I am not of nature's mint nor of the circling sky. I am not of this world, nor of the next, nor of heaven, nor of hell. I am not of Adam, nor of Eve, nor of Eden and paradise. My place is the placeless. My trace is the traceless. It is neither body nor soul, for I belong to the soul of the beloved. So, <laughs> you see, this, this tells you a lot. I belong to the soul of the beloved. In all our myths, religions, uh, metals, everything, you know, I belong to the soul of beloved. Under the sun, all of us, right? All of us. Are, are there differences to how y'all the night is observed here in America or around the world? The difference is uh, based on what is available. For example, in Iran, we uh, watermelon and pomegranate are very, very important. That's why we preserve them. Pomegranate, you can find it at this time of the year, but watermelon we preserve from summer all the way to winter uh, because they are uh, red, they are, they are uh, full of passion. There is a lot of passion in there. Um, here, uh, uh, we may not have, uh, well, here we do have it, but you know, uh, if in a country or in a society, you don't have the same fruit, you replace it with something else. You know, or let's say if um, uh, you you may want to read uh, Edgar Allan Poe in here as opposed to Hafez. You know, it's not limited to one culture. It is a celebration of the birth of the sun, however you celebrate it. The main thing is gathering, food, conversation. That's Siena College professor Dr. Mahmoud Karimi Hakak speaking about the annual Yalda Night celebration in ancient Iranian winter solstice tradition dating back more than 2,500 years. He spoke with our Jody Cowan. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. This is the best of our knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. 
The Federal Chips and Science Act, a law signed by President Biden in 2022 to boost semiconductor manufacturing, includes billions of dollars for research and development, as well as language to create a National Semiconductor Technology Center. Some officials, including U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, want New York to be at the center of the high-tech research world. In New York's capital city, the Albany Nanotech Complex will see $10 billion in investment that includes partnerships with leading brands in the industry. New York State will contribute $1 billion towards the effort. The plan is to acquire and install in Albany what's called a High Numerical Aperture Extreme Ultraviolet Lithography Tool. IBM says the tool will allow the company to build chips with 50 billion transistors on technology the size of a fingernail. That's a lot of computing power. The best of our knowledge is Dave Lucas has more. Schumer says the law is meant to keep the U.S. on the cutting edge of semiconductor manufacturing and innovation. Because you know, when you do the research, that often sets the rules. And we're going to do the top-notch, top-of-the-line, not duplicated anywhere, research right here. Schumer says Albany Nanotech will be the only facility in North America and one of only two public institutions in the world to employ high NAEUV lithography. Schumer says New York is on tap to reap many benefits. What does this $10 billion investment mean? Three things. Jobs. 700 uh, new high-paying jobs. Second, makes the capital region in upstate New York the global leader in chip research. And third, it shows that we can get this National Semiconductor Technology Center. Governor Kathy Hochul says industry partners, including Micron, IBM, Applied Materials, Tokyo Electron, and others, will use the most advanced semiconductor equipment ever made to power tomorrow's mobile phones and computers. Semiconductors are absolutely central to our lives, even though you don't think about them on a regular basis. And the cutting edge is constantly evolving rapidly, rapidly before our eyes. Just look no further than the smartphone in your pocket. Actually, don't look at them, it's kind of disruptive. <laughs> but that one little device has more processing power in it than all the computers combined that existed on our planet 50 years ago. That's amazing. It has 100,000 times the computing power and 9 million times the memory that the computer at the Apollo 11 had to land astronauts on the moon. This is in our lifetime, my friend. This is not happening over 50 years, 100 years. This is happening now. And the countries that are able to lead on semiconductors will be, will be at the vanguard of the world's technological future. Reporting for the best of our knowledge, I'm Dave Lucas.
This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1735. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan. The latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.